is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to suicide and incest. It also contains some naughty language and may not be suitable for all listeners. The views expressed in this episode are not representative of our employers. As with the nature of all historical research, we have attempted to be as accurate as possible, but some mistakes may be present. Mahaba, I am Nicola, and I am a teacher on holiday, though, which is very, very nice. Uh, and I'm Hannah. Woo! I'm a PhD student uh, studying women protesting nuclear weapons, 1950s, 1960s Australia. Very interesting. Mm. Look it up. Um, and I'm not on holidays. It's very sad. <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> you like big bombs and you cannot lie. <laughs> Uh, and this is Women of War, a podcast where, as you probably know, we talk about women and how they were involved in various conflicts throughout history. So today, Hannah, are we ready to jump in? We're ready to jump in. We're Let's ready to just, jump just in. dive straight oh, into the if sea. there's a rattling noise, Hannah's wearing earrings oh. with a flash. Don't leave them in. They're, we're committed now. Make make the earring noise. If you can hear that, that's her earrings. If not, we're going to cut this out. <laughs> today, we're looking at two women, both named R. Uh, Artemisia. Artemisia. Artemisia from Caria in Western Anatolia, who were both naval commanders and both, insert something funny here. Um, I literally couldn't think of anything else that was funny to combine them. So they I were in the Navy as mothers it. to protect the motherland in the Navy. I don't know if they were mothers. Well, you know, like mother's motherland. That's the joke. Okay. I, I um, You want to hear a joke? No. My career. All right, moving on. <laughs> Let's start with Artemisia the first of Caria. First of her name, Queen of Halicarnassus, Nos, Nisiros, Kalimnos, commander of the Battle of Salamis. She had a lot of things going on. She's got some stuff, you know. Um, we don't often get to talk about naval battles, which is kind of sad because I think they're pretty cool. Um, and this lady is pretty cool, although we don't know much about it, which is very sad. So, Artemisia I was born sometime in the early 400s BCE. Well, first I have to say, tank battles are cooler. The first tank battle actually took place on Australia's National Sacred Day, Anzac Day, mm. 1918. Mm. Yeah, at Villers Bretonneux. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, Artemisia I, her name comes from Artemis, the lead character in Owen Colfer's <laughs> famous series of child crime novels. This is not correct. Um, or the Greek goddess of the hunt. That is correct. Yes. We know very little about her early life. She was the daughter of King Ligdamus of Halicarnassus and an unnamed Cretan woman who I choose to name. Artemis Zero. Yeah. Upon the, the original. Yeah. The original, the OG. Artemis OG, that's her name. <laughs> Upon the death of her husband, who we don't know the name of, Artemisia assumed the throne of Caria as the regent for her son, Pisandellis, or as I choose to say it, Pisandellis. I love that Melbourne is such a vibrant city with so many like Greek people and Greek restaurants and Greek culture, and we can't pronounce these fucking names. <laughs> so we've discussed before the difficulties of finding sources on ancient history. Because the further you go back in time, the more you rely on only a few, or sometimes even less, written histories. Um, and this is the furthest in time we've gone back. So this is way out of our wheelhouse. I do the 1950s. This is a little bit earlier than that. Um, so many of these histories are built on the ones before. And so history of this time period is essentially a really long game of telephone of he said, she said, he said, she said. Or more likely, he said, he said, he said, yes, he said. Yes, correct, yes. Um, so most of what we know about Artemisia I is from historical accounts of her role in the Persian king Xerxes, Xerxes I's attempt 
expected conquest of Greece. And since that's what we're going to be talking about, should we discuss who Xerxes was and what he thought he was doing conquering Greece? I think that would be a very good idea. Yes. So, we're talking about 500s and 400s BCE, before Common Era, which is, again, as Hannah just said, the earliest we've ever covered on the podcast. And we are not ancient historians. I mean, I am a historian, and I do feel pretty ancient some days. So, especially when I'm talking to, like, 21-year-olds. So, where were we? Here we are. So, we're back in ancient Greece. Ancient, ancient Greece. Everyone's chilling in togas. Probably. I think. I don't actually know much about ancient Greek fashion. Um... Oh, it's my turn. It is your turn. That's why I like sitting here quietly. I'm waiting for you to like do your line. Okay, so the BCE dates really made my brain hurt when I was writing this script because I know how they work, but my brain's like, this is backwards. You can't count down. Yeah. You'll count up. So we're, we're doing our best to get the details right, but if we don't, you are welcome to talk to us on Twitter. No, you can talk to Hannah on Twitter. I don't give a shit. That's fair. Um, but we won't listen to you if you're obnoxious about it anyway, so that's fine. Um... So we reserve the right not to listen if you're being obnoxious about it, um, or we do just assume, if you assume you've been neglected to mention something in an episode that we do mention in an episode, so we then in turn assume you've just decided to show off your knowledge and not listen, Greg. Yes. We have had this before. Yeah, like, hey, did you mention this person? It's like, why don't you listen to the fucking episode? No, no, it's not, did you mention it? It's, why didn't you talk about this? It's like, we did. And it's like, Greg. oh, well, we did, and then, oh, well, I haven't listened to the episode yet. Mm, okay. That sounds like a you problem, then. That sounds like yeah. a you problem. So... Um, and look, honestly, I used to say, like, oh, that's such a man thing to do, but I do do it too. <laughs> so, um, we need to remind ourselves that Greece that we are talking about is not Greece as we know it today. We are going to use Greece as shorthand in this episode for ease of listening, but it was not a unified nation, but rather a collection of city-states who were friends or frenemies, depending on the time of day. So Xerxes I, or Xerxes the Great, and we can all bet he gave himself that name, mm-hmm. was the king of the Persian Achaemenid Empire... Yeah, close enough. Every time I read it, my brain says arachnid. <laughs> like the Persian arachnid empire. They all rode spiders. Xerxes inherited his empire from his father, Darius I, also known as the Great. So then again, it could have been an inherited surname. Maybe it was the surname. The Great. N- the Great. Yeah. 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 Um, when Darius inherited the throne, the empire stretched from modern-day Turkey across the continent to modern-day India, including a little bit of Egypt on the way. However, after a few revolts, the empire was increasingly unstable and uprisings threatened to overturn everything. Perhaps it was stretched too far. No. Darius wrested control back using his extensive army and even extended the empire. To control such vast territories, Darius created tw- 20 satrapies, essentially provinces, who were under the rule of local satraps or governors. And if that name is sounding familiar, I believe this is the origin of the surname satrapy, which is Marjan satrapies, basically war were descended from princes and yep. kings, who we yep. talked about in the Marjan satrapy episode about Iran. So each satrapy paid tribute... Also, by the way, I'm so sorry for how I pronounce satrapy. I know it's wrong. <laughs> it's the Bogan version of Satrapies. Upper middle satrapy. Each satrapy paid tribute to Darius and the Persian Empire and were overseen by military commanders that were separate from the satraps. Darius also ran an extensive network of spies known as King's Ears, who reported back using the postal service. This was one of the ways he kept control over the empire. And in addition to the king's ears, he also had a special place to keep the king's armies. I don't want to ask this because I know this is going to be bad, but I'm going to ask this. Where did he keep the king's armies, Nicola? (laughs) You know it's a bad joke when he's already laughing. The king's sleeveys. (laughs) (laughs) That took me a minute. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So... (laughs) 
In 499 BCE, the Ionian Revolt destabilised everything again and began a long period known as the Greco-Persian Wars. Many Greek cities on the Ionian coast were unhappy to be ruled by the Persians, who took the dictatorial, tyrannical approach, which, you know, I would also be annoyed. I would take that approach. That's, yeah. That's the podcast. No. (laughs) (laughs) Aristagoras, the ruler of Miletus, tried to take over a nearby city, failed, panicked that the Persians would be mad, and so began a rebellion against the Persians, which seems to me like a surefire way to definitely make the Persians mad. But you do you, Aristagoras. Like, sure. Luckily for Aristagoras, many Ionian states followed his lead and overthrew their Persian rulers. This is such a pattern in history of, oh, that didn't work. Quick, rebellion! <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I fucked up. I, I fucked up. I think that happened in Wales with Owen Glinda. Like, they were like, hey, we tried to have a thing and it failed. You're the leader of the rebellion now. And he was like, oh, okay. We covered that in um, Granny O'Malley, too. Like, there was the Desmond Rebellion, and mm. it was named after a guy who was like, I'm not involved in this rebellion, and now I have this rebellion Des, named after Des, me. Des, Des, <laughs> say yes. Why? No reason, just say it. But in this case, you know, luckily, the others decided they would also like to overthrow the Persian rulers. So eventually, with the help of Athens, the Ionian forces marched into the Persian city of Sardis and eventually set fire to the city when they couldn't take the citadel. Mm-hmm. Logical, yep. Yep. This led to the Persians massacring most of the Greek troops... But Aristagoras was committed, or just plain scared shitless at this point, <laughs> so he kept revolting until he could revolt no more. He fled and gave command of Miletus to Pythagoras. Yes, that Pythagoras. Apparently better at triangles and cities, Pythagoras was not able to hold off the Persians, who took Miletus in 494 BCE, which was the end of the Ionian revolt. revolt. But the consequences of the failed revolt were far-reaching. Darius was really pissed off that people didn't like him, and the Greek city-states were really pissed off that they were being ruled by assholes. So nobody was really happy no at this point. No one was happy. At one point, when Darius sent emissaries to the Greek city-states to collect tribute, the Athenians and the Spartans, both very committed to their personal brand, did not comply. The Athenians put the emissaries on trial and then executed them, while the Spartans just threw them down a well. Which, you know, that's what you'd assume the I, Athenians and the Spartans would do, really. I believe, A, that was the bit shown in 300, that very lot... I refuse to see that movie. Honestly, Zack Snyder knows what kind of movie he wants to make, and you have to admire the chutzpah. Yeah. But also, I believe this is when the Persians were like, we demand water and air from you. Like, no, not water and air. Earth and water from you. And so they put him down a well and was like, if you want all the earth and water you can have, here, have some. Epic burn from the Spartans there. right? They practiced that. They, like, tortured the children, but then, like, afterwards they made them read, like... I don't know, um, Oscar Wilde books to, like, get their burn on. <laughs> so this is the empire Xerxes I inherited. Xerxes took that beat-into-submission-mercilessly approach, which is how I also approach teaching geography. That's a very logical approach. Riots in Babylon, prompted by increased taxes, led to Xerxes sacking the city, destroying the temple, and melting down a solid gold statue, destroying the prestige and wealth of Babylon forever. Xerxes used the gold from the statue to fund a campaign against the Greeks in 480 BCE to expand the empire and take revenge for the Greek defeat of the Persians at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE, where David Wenham was present. Over four years, Xerxes amassed his army through conscription, as well as collecting supplies and weapons. When he began the campaign, the Persian army consisted of over 2 million men and 4,000 ships, which is a lot of men and a lot of ships. So I have a note in here that says query numbers. Oh. And I never, That's a lot of men. I never queried the numbers. Well, I did, but the sources are just 
a mess. Like, Everyone says different numbers. The Russian Empire at World War One had a six million man army. Yeah. So that's like I do query that. Yeah, a I query lot. these numbers, but you can't really get accurate numbers. And so essentially. It was just a lot of men and a lot of ships. That's the point that they a were making. A shipload of men and a shipload yeah. of ships. Yeah. 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 There's just a lot. Yeah. So, to make the movement of the naval force easier and avoid the dangerous storms around the Athos Peninsula, Xerxes had a canal dug through the Athos Isthmus in northern Greece in 483 BCE. With the canal built and his army assembled, Xerxes felt ready to begin his invasion. He really should have listened to the omens, however, which were quite ominous from the beginning. The omens. The ominous omens. Mm -hmm. The not good omens. So to start with, the waters of the Hellspond rose dramatically. Did you white out something? I did. Ah! Ah! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Let me read that again! So Hannah whited out some text. I'm very excited. And I thought this is where we were, but I wasn't going to say anything. I gave it to you as a little treat. <sighs> Thank it's a little you. present. To start with, the waters of the Hellspont, known today as the Dardanelles of the Strait of Gallipoli, oh, rose dramatically, forcing Xerxes to order bridges built to cross it. So the omens continued once they crossed the Hellspont. A horse apparently gave birth to a hare, which Xerxes seemed to think was unimportant, but I think it's love is quite, love. It's love is love, Hannah. Quite telling. Um, so basically. This is what's going on. A lot of bad omens. So what was Artemisia, who is the focus of this part of the episode, doing while horses were defying the laws of nature? I spent like 20 minutes talking about Trotsky. And you're like, oh, another about Trotsky. And he goes like, mm, let's talk about Xerxes this episode. <laughs> justice. Justice for Nicola. <laughs> so as part of the Persian Empire, carry out the city, had to supply troops and ships for Xerxes' invasion force. Artemisia, however, made the unusual decision to lead her troops and fleet personally. Unusual in that she was... a a woman. Yeah. And ancient Greece, historically, yeah, not so great for women's rights. Yeah, and so she's leading them because she's queen regent, yeah. looking after her son. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how old her son is at this point. It's not clear. He could still be, like, 40. <laughs> she's Maybe, like, yeah. no, no, no. And no. she's got, like, a dummy in his mouth and giving him a rattle. Like, he's five. Leave him alone. He's very advanced for his age. So, um, her first battle was at Artemisium, which is, you know, ominous. Good. Good ominous. Mm. A series of naval battles that coincided with the land battles at Thermopylae in August or September 480 BCE, fought between the Persian forces and an alliance of Greek cities including Sparta, Athens and Corinth. Artemisium resulted in a stalemate, causing the Greek alliance to retreat to Salamis. Xerxes held a council of his commanders to decide whether to follow the Greek fleet. Alone, out of the commanders, Artemisia voted to wait, believing that a naval battle at Salamis was risky. I'm going to say it different every time. <laughs> According to Herodotus, Artemisia told the Persian military commander Mardonios that, quote. quote, tell the king to spare his ships and not do a naval battle because our enemies are much stronger than us in the sea, as men are to women. And why does he need to risk a naval battle? Athens is his and the rest of Greece too. No man can stand against him, and they who once resisted were destroyed. If Xerxes chose not to rush into a naval encounter, but instead kept his ships close to the shore and either stayed there or moved them towards the Peloponnese, victory would be his. The Greeks can't hold out against him. They will leave for their cities because they don't have food in store, as I have learned, and when our army will march against the Peloponnese, they who have come from there will become worried, and they will not stay here to fight to defend Athens." But if he hurries to engage, I am afraid that the navy will be defeated and the land forces will be weakened. In addition, he should also consider that he has certain untrustworthy allies, like the Egyptians, the Cyprians, the Kilikians, and the Pamphlians, who are completely useless. What a burn. What a burn. All they do is hand out pamphlets. 
So whether she said that exactly is questionable, since Herodotus was not in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. Once again, thanks to my cousin for those Hamilton tickets. And was an ancient Greek man writing about a woman. But other sources do corroborate the idea that she was a lone voice calling to avoid a naval battle at Salamis. Though Xerxes decided to go ahead with the battle, he did apparently appreciate her thoughts. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Honey! <laughs> like, no. The Battle of Salamis took place probably in September 480 BCE. On the evening of the battle, Themistocles, an Athenian general, sent a servant to Xerxes, proclaiming that he was turning against the Greeks. Themistocles told Xerxes that the Greek forces were splintering, and some would be piecing out and leaving in the night. He suggested Xerxes set up a blockade to capture the fleeing ships. Yet while the Persians waited all night for these ships to arrive, the Greek naval forces prepared for battle the next day. In the morning, the Persians gave up the search and rowed out to meet the Greek fleet. Artemisia supplied five ships and led the forces of Halicarnassus and nearby cities. According to Herodotus, Artemisia's ships were well regarded, held second only to Sidon. Her active involvement in the battle astounded Herodotus, who wrote, quote, Artemisia, who moves me to marvel greatly that a woman should have gone with the armament against Hellas, for her husband being dead, she herself had his sovereignty and a young son withal, and followed the host under no stress of necessity, but of mere high-hearted valour. Tactically, the Persians, with their superior numbers, were at the advantage on the open seas, while the Greek fleet wished to draw the battle to narrow straits, where their heavier ships could do more damage in the close quarters. Luckily for the Greeks, the battle soon moved to the strait, and the Persian fleet quickly became disorganised and began getting in each other's way. Row! Not that way! <laughs> row! Honestly, in top 50 places of history you wouldn't want to be, the idea of being a rower on a oh, warship yeah. is like any submarine, yeah. any rower, yep. no thank you. Yeah, yep. no. Would not want to be there. So Artemisia soon found her ship being pursued by an Athenian ship. Her escape blocked by her allies, the Kellen. The Canadians. Canadians. The Canadians. Not the Canadians. <laughs> Artemisia had come prepared for anything. She ordered that the Persian flag be replaced by the Greek colours. <laughs> and Artemisia charged the Kalindian ship that was blocking her exit. When the captain of the Athenian ship pursuing her saw this, he assumed she was actually a Greek ship or a Persian deserter and thus an ally. And so therefore he was like, all right, we're not going to chase you. It's cool. I wish it You're was on a, our side. I wish it was a Canadian ship. Like, oh, sorry, eh? we thought you were a... Canada we thought you were Persian. not exist at this point. <laughs> In my heart. Um, according to Herodotus, it was only because the Athenian captain did not realise it was Artemisia's ship that he gave up the pursuit. Even if he had believed she was deserting and fighting for the Greeks, if he knew it was her ship Herodotus claimed, the captain would have continued to seek to destroy her until he was victorious or had been defeated. Several historians agree that the Athenian captains had orders to take Artemisia alive, quote, since they thought it intolerable that a woman should make an expedition against Athens, end quote. Watching the battle from the shore, it is possible Xerxes believed Artemisia had actually sunk a Greek ship rather than a Persian ship, with Xerxes reportedly saying in response, quote, My men have become women, and my women, men, end quote. Which is fine if they wanted to. Let's chill. Yep. All these quotes are coming from Herodotus. That bitch. Yeah. He's like the only historian who yeah. like wrote stuff down. Yeah. Uh, so, at this point, it was over for the Persian fleet. Though they tried to retreat, the Greek ships continued pursuit and so the Persian fleet returned to the army with their tail between their legs. In the wake of their defeat, Xerxes attempted to build another bridge across the strait to continue the attack with his land army, but the Greek fleet was now patrolling and the Persians were unsuccessful. 
I do like the idea of like trying to really quickly build a bridge in the middle of the night. Well, actually, that's which I know has been done. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's always such a funny image. To I me. can't believe we're gonna lose this battle. Why didn't you build a bridge and get over it? <laughs> so most of the Persian forces retreated home. The Battle of Salamis was the beginning of the end of the Persian campaign against Greece, which led to an eventual Greek victory in the ongoing Greco-Persian wars. I'm so sorry, I gave you another quote. It's okay, it's revenge for last time when I gave you all the <laughs> Russian names to read. So Xerxes is still fighting, Xerxes Persian, Artemisia is still fighting for the Persians, even though she put up Greek colours. Yes, okay. so Artemisia is still fighting for the Persians, she put up the Greek colours just to get away from the Greek ship that was pursuing her. She was um, like, I'm one of you guys! I'm going to say something that is becoming my cast rates, but that's illegal! <laughs> Uh, I assume the le- the naval laws of warfare didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she cared about them. That's a dick move. Yeah, but she was like, I want to uh, get out of this alive. Yeah. Funnily that. Yeah. After Salamis, Xerxes praised Artemisia's actions, presumably <laughs> not knowing she tanked one of their own. I like you said tanked, because I like tanks. It's very sweet of you. And sent her a set of Greek armour. Artemisia was one of Xerxes' commanders who recommended the majority of the Persian force retreat. Just um, going back to the Greek armour, interrupting you. Yeah. Presumably, male armor. So with like a cod piece. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, is this gonna fit you? We don't know. I assume it's like more of a trophy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but it's just it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Or maybe they were like, quick, bend, bend it so she's got a breastplate. Yeah, I don't even know what Greek armor's made of. Like, what Greek city state is this? Don't ask it's me. Just, it's don't just, ask me. It's questions. actually not armor. It's just a toga with like with like a little military badge on it or something. <laughs> Who knows? After Salamis, Xerxes praised Artemisia's actions presumably not knowing she tanked one of their own, and he sent her a set of Greek armour, presumably male Greek armour. Artemisia was one of Xerxes' commanders who recommended the majority of the Persian force retreat, arguing, you should retire and leave Madonius behind with those whom he desires to have. If he succeeds, the honour will be yours because your slaves performed it. If he fails, it will be no great matter as you would be safe, and no danger threatens anything that concerns your house. And while you will be safe, the Greeks will have to pass through many difficulties for their own existence. In addition, if Mardonius were to suffer a disaster, who would care? He is just your slave, and the Greeks will have but a poor triumph. As for yourself, you will be going home with the object for your campaign accomplished, for you have burnt Athens. Get wrecked, Mardonius. <laughs> so we don't really know anything about the I after the Battle of Salamis. She may have taken care of Xerxes' sons, or she may have fallen in love with a man named Dardanus and then jumped off the rock of Lick House due to unrequited love. That sounds like fucking bullshit. Yeah, that's my thoughts exactly. Maybe she faked it like she put up the flags, and now she's <laughs> like, yeah, I, Look, I really... That sounds more like her character. I love you too. I'm just going to go for a swim. And, like, they find her toga, like, on the rock. Yeah. And in actuality, she, like, Fs off and, like, I don't know, yep. founds Rome or something. <laughs> Basically, we just don't know what happened to her. Mm. I'm I'm sure she did lots of cool stuff, though, still, and it just hasn't been recorded in the history. Yeah, or maybe she wore a fake beard, and they were like, yep. yeah, that's a man. Yep, yep. we just don't yep. know. Yep. I love the unrequited love things. Like, maybe she just was really depressed. Yeah. Also, she might have been really traumatised. by what she, Maybe she did yeah. kill herself. Yeah, but... Put that in the a, warnings at the end. Not so, for so. a dude. So, yeah. we just Whatever. don't know. Yeah. Whatever. So, we're going to leave Artemisia the first there for now. <gasps> Goodbye, Artemisia We're going to leave her swimming naked in the sea, leaving everyone behind thinking she's dead. And, like, with, like, a really smug look on her face. Yep. Yeah, like, with, like, some jazz music in the background. Like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> She's going to swim to Lesbos. All right. Okay, so we're going to jump forward a century now to the 4th century BCE and Artemisia II of Caria 
Second of her name. Sister wa- Oh, no. Mm. Mormons? Mormons do not exist in ancient Greece. Well, you all know the Bible is made of <laughs> testaments old and new. You've been told it's just those two parts. All right. Sister wife of Mausolus, ruler of Caria, and drinker of her husband brother's ashes. So she's basically Keith Richards. Okay, so that's that's the thing. She's that Keith is, Richards mm, and a Mormon. That is the thing. She's neither- We're saying sister wife, so she's the sister and the wife of yes, her brother. Yes. Okay, so it's not like Mormon sister wife. No, no. Okay. No, it's she was his sister and also married him. So Keith Richards incest. I don't know enough about Keith Richards. But- the, the legend goes he snorted his father's ashes. Okay. So the idea is she drank her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So whether this Artemisia is named after the other Artemisia is unclear because there's about 100 years separating them. So even though they were from the same place, it's probably more likely they were both named after Artemis, the goddess. Or why not both? It could be both. Hmm. It could be both. Um, we don't know. I, could, I I tried to find out if there was any like relation between the two, like a descendant. Hmm. It's not clear. Like There's just too much time in between them. Or it could be like she's her secret grandmother, but because maybe. she changed her name, maybe, maybe. they don't know. Yep. Maybe. So, you know, it could just be a coincidence that there were two naval commanding queens named Artemisia in Caria. It could be a really popular name. Like, it could be every second woman was Artemisia. And that's what's going on. It's like how in movies with the apocalypse, everyone has a baby and calls it Hope. And it's like, there's going to be a million people running around called Hope. <laughs> yeah. So, that's, that's what's going yeah. on. So, sadly, we have even less information on Artemisia II, second of her name, than we do on the OG Artemisia I, first of her name. So, again, let's go back to the context. What was happening in Caria in the mid-300s BCE? While Artemisia I had fought for the Persians in the Ionian Revolt, some cities in western Caria had supported the Greeks. After that revolt failed, some of these cities became part of the Greek city-state alliance under Athens. However, by the early 4th century BCE, Caria was again completely under Persian rule and part of the Achaemenid Empire, the Arachnid Empire. Xerxes I was assassinated assassinated in 465 BCE and his son Artaxerxes Artaxerxes the I, of his name, took over ruling the empire. By the time Artemisia II was ruling Caria, the empire was ruled by Artaxerxes II, who we know nothing about. And this is why I study 20th century history, because there's an abundance. Yep, that's fair. So Artemisia II and her husband brother <gasps> Mausolus ruled over Caria in the early 300s BCE. So we'll start with Mausolus. Mausolus took over as the satrap of Caria in 377 BCE. One of the first things he did was set up Halicarnassus as the capital of Caria again, fortifying the city with walls that could cope with the latest dude bro tech, which was catapults. Well, what if we invented some kind of uh, trebuchet that could uh, throw things a mm. long way? It's like we already have that Elon. It's got a catapult. <laughs> So while Mausolus was ruling Caria, a few other satraps of the Persian Empire decided that they didn't like being ruled by Artaxerxes. Maybe they too were like, who is this guy? We can't even say his name. It doesn't fit on the coins. Where'd this guy come from? Between 366 and 360 BCE, which is the correct order because BCE, Mm -hmm. three satrapies revolted against Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, understandable, found this quite rude, and asked Mausolus to do something about it. Mausolus, along with Autofred... Duties of Lydia led the siege of why did I do this? Sweet revenge (laughs) at Remitium against one of the revolting satraps. That's quite rude. You don't know he was revolting. Maybe he was very clean and lovely. 
I'm just going to insert cricket noises. <laughs> so, Mausolus and Autophrodites were able to subdue, subdue the rebels, and it looked good for them until Sparta showed up. Money changed hands between Sparta and Mausolus, which don't ask me which way, because I'm really not sure, and Mausolus called off the siege. We think. So don't quote us on this, it is quite confusing. So if we understand this correctly, Mausolus paid Agesalus not to attack Caria and to stay friends. Because of this, Mausolus was for a very short time on the other side of the revolt of the Straps, i.e. supporting the rebellion. Yes. But they soon switched back because you're hot, then you're cold. And you're yes, then you're no, you're in, then you're out. Still slaps. Still slaps. So then Artaxerxes III, who we also know very little about, (laughs) took over from his dad, Artaxerxes II, forget him, as history has. Um, He was happy to let Mausolus chill because of this earlier switcheroo. Yes. In 360 BCE, Mausolus decided to get into real estate and conquered parts of southern Anatolia, Anatolia. modern-day Turkey, as well as invading Ionia and a few Greek islands. The ancient housing market was definitely more of a buyer's market than it is today. (laughs) Though Mausolus was technically under Persian rule, with a Persian force stationed at his garrison, he essentially ruled Caria and surrounds as an independent king. So basically, he could do whatever the fuck he wanted. Yeah, like marry his sister. Apparently that was a thing in their family. It might just be a status thing. Yeah, they weren't the first to do it, and it's like, okay, look, Darwin hasn't come along yet and told you this is a bad idea. They they kind of knew, though. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a reason the peasants aren't all doing it. It's like just the royalty. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 350s, Mausolus joined in another war that doesn't really concern him and participated in the social media war on Twitter. I don't think he did. Okay. Um, Also known as the War of the Allies... Now, just let's take World War Two and World War I and just put them over there. We yeah. don't have to think about Those that. Those allies do not exist yet. The social war was between the allied city-states of Rhodes, Cos, Byzantion and Chios on one side, and Athens and the Second Athenian League on the other. The Second Athenian League was an alliance of Greek city-states on the Aegean Sea, which I have swum in, that formed to better defend themselves against Sparta and the Persians, who are not really involved in this. But the League was soon dominated by Athens, and the allied city-states found Athens too controlling for their tastes. Shocker. So they decided to leave the League. And this was as easy as getting out of a gym membership, and so war were declared. Yes. Please don't ask us to explain more about this war. Alexander the Great's father was there, there were some naval battles, the Persians got mad when the war got too close to their borders, Elon Musk was like, I'm going to make a child-sized submarine, and all the Persians are pedophiles. It was all very complicated. And so on and so forth. Um... And so it's also not super clear why Mausolus got involved, but since the League was set up in part to defend against Persian expansion, it seems logical that as a Persian Persian satrap, Mausolus would be happy to support the city-states fighting the League. It could also be that Artaxerxes encouraged Mausolus to interfere to help sow more discord amongst the Greek city-states and give Persia an opening for another invasion of Egypt, so he could have been a bit more of like a sleeper agent, I guess. Maybe he was a honey trap. We don't know. Yeah, he's like, I don't actually want to fuck my sister. <laughs> I could. So Mausolus came out of the social war very well off. Um, now not only the satrap of Caria, but also the ruler of several Greek islands. So for whatever reason he got into it, he, he made a good decision for him, and he was very good good place when he got out of it. Yeah. So Mausolus is supporting the Persians. Yes. Even though he's theoretically independent. Yes. Yes. So he's, he's technically under Persian rule and is sort of like 
a step down from the Persians and he's got to report to them. But he was operating pretty independently. Yeah. Um, but he was still, yeah, he's still So he's like, he's like the non-aligned movement, but secretly on one side. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, where was Artemisia to during all of this? As we mentioned, the sources on her are extremely limited, and there are nearly no contemporary sources of, on her written when she was alive that remain. Much of what we know about her was written by, of course, the Romans, who had very strong views about what women should and shouldn't do. And so they presented Artemisia too through their own lenses of womanhood. Then, in the Byzantine period, i.e. 300 CE onwards, misogynistic scholars wrote Artemisia II out of the history, a trend which has been replicated in modern histories and is only recently being fixed. Yes. So, through Mausolus' reign as satrap, Artemisia ruled as his wife, and so would have been involved to some extent in the wars that we've just covered. There is some evidence in inscriptions that Artemisia was in fact a co-ruler with Mausolus, rather than sort of like, a, you know, the woman behind the, the powerful man. Um, we know that the most about Artemisia after Mausolus died. So, by Mausolus. Oh, I miss my yeah. husband brother so much. After his death in 353 BCE, Artemisia took over as the sole ruler of Caria. And though she was not necessarily officially appointed as satrap by the Persians, she was a de facto satrap. So they kind of just went, yeah, keep going. So essentially they were like, yeah. You know, yeah, all right. You've done it. You've been doing it with him. Do it by yourself. That saves us having to like. You've been doing it with your brother for so long. Um, <laughs> you know what? It's just too weird. You can keep going. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Artemisia ruled as de facto satrap between three five three and three fifty BCE alone. Artemisia, who historians have suggested may have been responsible for the cultural aspects of Carian life, hired artists, writers, historians, and architects to commemorate Mausolus her brother-husband. During this period, Artemisia commissioned the construction of a massive tomb for Mausolus, which is where we get the name for a mausoleum. Mm. This is a Nicola-centric episode all of a sudden. Fun fact. Artemisia threw money at the mausoleum, hiring the best artists and architects to design and decorate the tomb. I guess it's his, her husband and her brother. Like, you're yeah. not going to waste any more money on the other one. <laughs> Why am I stuck on this one? It's like the Romans were also doing incest up the shenanigans. <laughs> all right. Most impressively, and probably most expensively, was a marble sculpture of a four-horse chariot by famous architect Pythias, but later known today as Kevin MacLeod. The mausoleum <laughs> also included sculptures of Mausolus and Artemisia, as well as past rulers, including many women, presumably all sisters. The mausoleum <laughs> was so impressive that it is regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yeah, so we've got, you know, like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and there's the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. There you go! Yeah, so it's one of, it's... So she created this thing that has survived history, even That's though we don't soon. know What's annoying much is, about her. I don't know much about Seven Ancient Wonders, and every time I play that game Timeline, I always pick the Colossus of Rhodes, and it's like, when? Who? Why? I hate it. <laughs> so histories of Artemisia II, including Wikipedia, argue that Artemisia's very public grief was due to her deep love for Mausolus, and suggest that she died of grief only a few years later. Roman and Greek historians, all male, viewed Artemisia's actions through their own beliefs about women. She's been celebrated for her womanly grief over the loss of her husband hey, slash hey, brother. Hey. She could also just be sad that her brother's died. <laughs> <laughs> With, so Roman historians tell, tell us that her grief was so powerful, she built one of the greatest monuments of the ancient world for him, and she also mixed his ashes into probably wine and drank it to be closer to him, I guess. Like in, It's like the, uh, the Victorians had like the hair bracelets, like... People, before the invention of the photograph... I mean, like, that makes yeah, sense. It makes yeah. sense. I can, like... I, I would never do it, but, like... I kind of feel like if you've made a giant mausoleum, that's enough. But that's impersonal. It is impersonal. 
But yeah. No. Um, so according to Valerius Maximus, quote, It would be trivial to argue how much Artemisia, queen of the Carian people, missed her dead husband Mausolus, after the magnificence of the many kinds of honours she devised for him, and the monument that arose to become one of the seven wonders. Why indeed collect the formal, or speak of that renowned tomb, when she herself desired to become a living and breathing sepulchre of Mausolus, according to the testimony of those who recount that she drank a potion sprinkled with the deceased's bones. End quote. Maybe she had a spoon made out of his, like, tibia, and then the spoon, like, broke in the drink. And everyone was like, ew, she drank it, like, the crumbled... She's like, no, I had a spoon. Calm down. I don't know how that's better. That's, <laughs> that's different. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I think it's the same. Yeah. But, so it's... It's interesting that sort of like she wanted to become a living tomb for him by drinking his ashes. Like, did she? Maybe. Like, I'm okay with that idea. It's just if they reduce her just to the wife as opposed to the ruler, that's the problem. Yeah. So, this made Artemisia II the perfect example of womanhood for these Roman historians for her deep devotion to her dead husband slash brother. But there is another interpretation of her public memorialization, public relations, and regime stabilization. According to several sources, it's probable that Mausolus was not a well-liked ruler and, in fact, had a rather bad reputation. Apart from the whole invading other islands thing, he also heavily taxed people under his rule, probably to pay for the invasion of the islands, and people really liked being taxed heavily, especially their billionaires. There were many attempted rebellions against Mausolus and even an assassination attempt. When he died, this would have also put Artemisia in a bad position. She was already vulnerable as a woman in a Hellenistic or Greco-Roman culture, where women were rarely given any sort of political power. Indeed, after Mausolus died, Rhodes sent an invasion force to Caria to protest Artemisia ruling as a single woman. Artemisia responded to the invasion by concealing her own naval force in a secret harbour. She then told the Carian people to prevent to welcome the Rhodian force and promise to surrender. That's illegal. Lulling the Rhodians into a false sense of security, Artemisia then sailed out of the secret harbour with her fleet, stealing the empty Rhodian ships and sailing them out to sea, leaving the Rhodians stranded and vulnerable in Caria. Not content with destroying the Rhodian soldiers, Artemisia commanded her own troops to sail the Rhodian ships back to Rhodes, tricking the Rhodians to think it was their own people coming home. And then she took Rhodes for herself. So she basically played the ultimate... You know, reverse. Yeah. <laughs> draw four! Draw four! Skip! Reverse! Reverse back to me! <laughs> now, this story comes from after Artemisia's rule, so it may not be true. though, Or it may not have been her whole plan the entire yeah. time. Yeah. Though contemporary sources from her time and more recent archaeological discoveries back up at least parts of it, but Hannah liked it, so it's staying in the Look, episode. It's such a baller move. It is baller. And it, like, it makes sense. It's good tactics. Yeah. I, I can also it. say, like, hey, let's hide the ships and, like, yeah. use it to trap them. Hey, we've got so many of these ships, yeah. what if we just... Yeah. Why don't like, we... Like, maybe it wasn't, like, sat down and had the plan out at the yeah. start, but, she, you know, making the decisions, it worked. Mm. So, regardless, there were definitely challenges to Artemisia's rule after Mausolus died by people either mad at the corrupt Mausolus's, like, you know, regime, or mad that a woman was ruling. If she wanted to remain in power rather than losing her throne to one of Mausolus's brothers, her own brother, too... I don't want to marry her sloppy seconds. She needed to do some major image work to make sure people didn't associate her and Mausolus' rule as a bad time. By hiring writers and artists to tell epic stories of Mausolus and by building the mausoleum, Artemisia not only rehabilitated Mausolus' reputation, but also her own. And she gave Mausolus a good send-off to the afterlife. So Artemisia's grief at her husband and brother's death 
may have been the driver for her commission of the mausoleum, but we do also need to consider how her actions may have been shaped by the political climate around her as well. Mm. In probably a shock twist to no one, much of Artemisia II's legacy is focused on her grief, particularly drinking Mausolus's ashes, including my own focus on it. <laughs> Medieval writers praised her as, quote, a lasting example of chaste widowhood and the purest and rarest kind of love. End quote. I guess medieval writers bloody love Game of Thrones. <laughs> in the 17th century, many painters depicted Artemisia's ritual grief, often painting her with a goblet about to gobble the ashes. <laughs> gobble just makes it so much worse. Chunky. <laughs> like, you know when you get, um, I used to love continental cup of soups, and they'd have like, new croutons, and the croutons would be like the most disgusting. Oh. Okay, I'm going to stop talking oh. now, because your face <laughs> So Artemisia I has had slightly more recognition for her naval exploits, and that's what she's remembered for. So there have been ships named after her, and in the sequel to the movie 300... Oh, I did put this in the script. <laughs> I did, and it was a sequel. I have not seen it, because, yep. you know, I've seen the first one. doesn't mean I like it. Mm -hmm. I've just seen it with my eyes. So Artemisia is in the sequel. She's played by Eva Green, mm. um, and she was portrayed as a naval commander and was apparently the film's main protagonist. Again, haven't seen it, don't plan to. Why don't you? But, I don't know. It's fair. You yeah. don't have to, life's too short yeah. for bad movies. So she sort of has that recognition as the naval commander. So even though Artemisia II also had a lot of naval you know, exploits and, and did that ruling political power stuff, mm. she's remembered for the drinking of her husband's ashes. And so it's just, yeah... Interesting, yeah. the comparisons between the 200 years. I mean, after the failure of Game of Thrones, there is an open market for a successful series about brother-sister incest and big battles. So Definitely like, the takeaway for this episode. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just find it... I, the idea of eat, consuming one who has left us, you know, it's not an uncommon idea. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I, there's other examples in history. I need to get outside more. You probably do. Yeah. And I'm slightly concerned that if I die... I'm not going to eat your body. Thank you. That's your mum's job. <laughs> now, I want to become a tree. I would like to become a mm. tree as well. Mm. I think yeah. that would be fun. Yeah. So that's what we know about Artemisia 1 and Artemisia 2. First and second of their name. First and second of their name. There's really not much out there except for the, these few small details. Mm. But it was I came across it them in a documentary yeah. that was like, these two naval queens. And I was like, what? Yeah, because I assumed they were mother and daughter. Yeah. Because one and two. Yeah. yeah. And it's like two women named the same, ruling the same place, naval commanders. You assume there's going to be some connection. Yeah. But, but it might just be a coincidence. Yeah. Just bonkers. As far as history can, like, as far as the historical record shows, there's no definitive connection. Mm. It is interesting. I feel like a theme of this season right now is going to be women in history who did a lot of stuff, but we don't know much about. Yeah. Which that's, is which is pretty chill. It's definitely where we're going. It's I not going like... to be a full theme because that's really boring. Yeah, but not boring. It's just it's a more difficult kind of history because it's like sketching something that you can't see. You can only yeah. see the, where it's not. Yeah, it's 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 a much harder history for us to write too because mm. it's you kind of got to like fill in the blanks and not make assumptions, but also you can only see where tell it was. a broader story, even though you only have like a small snippet of their life. It's like you're trying to tell the story from the footprint. Yes. As opposed to the person. Yeah. yeah. It's difficult. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. But it can also be very frustrating because you don't want to put words or ideas in their mouths. Yeah. And like in the... Unlike their brother's ashes. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, all we have of them is from male historians that were writing often centuries after their death too. So it's just... It's not even history. Though. Yeah. It's oral stories. Yeah. yeah. It's, it gets to the point where it's really hard to tell and I really admire ancient historians for their ability to be like I saw this name 
written on a stone, therefore we can kind of get this picture from it. Because that's what some of this is. Like, yeah. some of it is there was inscriptions of Mausolus and Artemisia, like, together, and the way it was written indicates that maybe they were co-rulers mm. because of, like, the, the different... The, the verb that they Yeah, used. the verb yeah. that you used and, like, the way it was written is that's how it was written for rulers, and so it sort of implies that they were mm. co-rulers. I'm very impressed by all this. I need a lot of typewritten letters yeah. to make my history. There's a source I'm using for an upcoming episode where it's the name of the person and then it's a verb. And if the verb is a pun, it means one thing. And if the verb is serious, it means mm. another thing. Yep. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> great. Love that. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love, love that it. journey for you. I'm only ever going to study people with that illness who, like, they can't stop writing because then you know exactly <laughs> what they were doing at all times. Yeah. So. That was a good episode. I learned a lot. Thank you. Mostly about mausoleums. Yep. I think it's a fun fact. Yeah. That's I think it's a great fact. From. Yeah. We can learn a lot about how humans commemorate the dead. Yeah. So I think that's very, very interesting. And it's sort of like, a bit like um, Alexandra from last last fortnight, where it's sort of, we don't necessarily know lots, but like, this is something that she had this huge impact on history. Mm. It's a word that we still use today. And so we, yeah, yeah learn more a about A woman her. invented the mausoleum. Yeah. For her friend, for her, for her husband, brother, her brother, husband. Yep. Yeah. Brusband. Her brusband. <laughs> Who I am picturing is Keith Richards. <laughs> Valid. <laughs> All right. Um, if you would like to, you Twitter, Facebook, website, www.womenofwarpod.com. Yep. We're, we're women of war pod everywhere. Yeah. Um, shoot us an email or a or a Facebook or a. Or a review on we, Apple Podcasts. We would love an, a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes yeah. our entire year. Yeah, it literally does. Like, <laughs> like you, we cannot understate how exciting it is to get a review on Apple Podcasts. Because we're basic bitches. Because we're basic okay. bitches. And it also means other people can find the podcast. And so we're just like, please, please, more food, more reviews. <laughs> and, um, yeah. good episode. Well done. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We Thanks really appreciate listening. it. We will see you in a fortnight. See hopefully. you then. Bye. Let me just rub this. It's like quite flat. Like, let's get that erect. And we can go. <laughs> Hi, kids. <laughs> I think the microphones are already erect. Oh, but see this flat bit here? Mm. Someone's got a penal fracture. Mm. I wonder if mum ever came across someone with a penal fracture. I have to ask her when I get home. What am I doing wrong? Or oh, I don't have Instagram. I swear that's the difference. No, see, we think it's Aldi actually. Because oh. mum's got more spam since she switched to Aldi. Aldi Mobile, not on. Well, I mean, their prices are good. Like, they work, you just At get spam. The, uh, the sacrifice of your privacy. Okay, whatever. I don't care about my privacy. I do. Anyway. <laughs> You're on a podcast. I've been on TV. <laughs> <laughs>